of Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm delighted to say that I'm here in Texas today with the pastor of one of the largest churches in America. I'm here with Dr. Jack Graham. He's the pastor of Prestonwood Church. And uh, we're currently inside the church building, inside the radio studios, uh, because, of course, a radio studio has been built inside the church building, which I understand is common in America, Dr. Graham, but perhaps not so much in the UK. Oh, well, we're really grateful for uh, our media opportunity. We have a... Uh, a church, obviously, that is online, as many churches are, and uh, with a television ministry as well, and then radio, uh, and it's been our joy to be on Premier in the past, and uh, we hope maybe again in yeah, the future, God willing. But yeah, we do have this studio as well as television, and uh, in order yes. to communicate the gospel. So PowerPoint Ministries, of course, is broadcast all over the world, mm. and, and here in the States through radio and TV, and you're really seeking to address current issues facing the world and the church, and trying to strike chords and, and connect with audiences worldwide. But thank you so much for being here on Premier Christian Radio for today's show. This is the profile where we like to find out about a person's life, how they came to faith and their ministry today. So let's start with Prestonwood, as I say, one of the largest churches in America. Is that a fact you're conscious of on a day to day of just how large this church is and the influence that it and you carries? Conscious in the sense that we're very grateful for the way God has blessed our church. Uh, it began approximately uh, 50 years ago, and you know, over these past five decades, I've been the pastor here 33 of those years, and uh, it's been an incredible story of of God's blessing and hand upon a congregation of people who are devoted to God, uh, committed to the gospel, and sharing Christ uh, to our community. And it, because this church has a great heart, you know, it, it, you know, we never set out, I never set out to build a quote mega church. I don't even like the term mega church, to be honest with you. I think the emphasis there is on the wrong, uh, it's the wrong uh, emphasis, but you know, it, it is one of the largest churches uh, in America. Uh, we have over 50,000 members, and uh, we have great facilities at multiple locations. And so, no, I don't say, I don't get up every day and think, oh, we have a big church. I, 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 I do get up every day and thank God for the way he has used us to reach our community and beyond. It's interesting you don't like the term megachurch. I wanted to ask you, you know, what are the strengths and the weaknesses of yeah. being such a large church? Because presumably there are both. There are both strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. Well, size is, uh, whether a church is large or whether it's small, is not really the issue. It, it, I like to me- try to measure the heart of a church, and I think that's what God does. Uh, just as he was choosing David to be king, uh, you know, the, the Scripture says God looks upon the heart. So always God doesn't measure we could be many and not much if you if you know what i mean and there are a lot of churches that are big that you know are not effective uh you can be just like a person i guess we can get overweight and and ineffective and or you can you know be underweight and ineffective so the point is that when a church is fulfilling its new testament commission the great commission of jesus and building around the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus, regardless of the size, uh, the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of a church is, is up to the Spirit of God. And we do have great people. We have uh, an evangelistic heart and a can-do spirit. 
this is Texas. You mentioned that you were in Texas. Texas is a great place, and uh, you think of the wild, wild west and the cowboys and all the rest here in Texas, but there is a great spirit in this state here in America of just can do. And, and so our people believe that God can do anything, and we've watched him do things beyond our imagination. I never set out to build a big church. We just set out to do what God has called us to do, and I'm not minimizing the hard work of people and some of the strategies and programs that uh, have been uh, accomplished here, but ultimately, it truly is not about personality. It's not about programming. It's not about paraphernalia, the best technology. It truly is that God has chosen to raise this church up and a people up in this community that is beyond uh, what we could have ever dreamed, hoped for, or imagined, Ephesians 3.20. Well, here on the show, we like to go back to the beginning and hear about a person's personal story. So can you share a little bit about life growing up and where Christianity first came into the picture for you? I was uh, blessed to be in a small town in a nearby state uh, to Texas, Arkansas, and uh, a little place called Conway, Arkansas, less than 10,000 people, so a very small town. But it was a very happy upbringing my first 10 years. We lived with my uh, maternal grandfather, who was a huge spiritual influence in my life. In fact, uh, my older brother, 13 years my senior, also a dynamic force for uh, my faith in uh, those earliest years. So those first 10 years of my life in small town growing up, my father owned a, a small restaurant, uh, and it was just uh, the, it was a great experience. And it was there as a small child. Uh, I had the opportunity to hear the gospel, to understand it to the best of my ability in those days, and I early on as a child, received Christ as Savior and began following him. So I've been following him all the days of my life. But in great part, that, of course, was due to the influence of my family and friends uh, in our community, but primarily my family. I'm so grateful. And if a person is blessed with a godly heritage and a Christian home, uh, you are, we are uh, abundantly blessed. You experienced a real family tragedy in your teens when you were when you were 19 can you tell us what happened what your your memories of 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 that time and how your faith helped pull you through after my years at uh, in arkansas we moved to texas when i was 10 so i grew up the rest of my time uh in fort worth texas near to where we are right now in plano but it's in north texas and so i had a great uh upbringing there uh, high school years I played uh, the great American sport of baseball uh, as a high school student and on into college as well. Uh, my father uh, was a big part of my life and had a great dad, and so we were very close. I went off to college, uh, again, to get further my education and play baseball. And on uh, August the 28th, 1970, uh, my father was brutally injured, uh, was bludgeoned by a shoplifter, a thief that came into his uh, hardware store that he was running. Uh, He lived for 10 days and uh, died. And it was, of course, stunning. It was uh, heart-wrenching to this day. it, It grieves me. Uh, though God certainly has healed our hurts. But, you know, when you lose a father in such a uh, catastrophic way, uh, left my mother a widow uh, in her 40s, and she was heartbroken. In fact, 
uh, it wasn't long till she was experiencing chest pains, and I believe she ended up dying several years later uh, with a broken heart. So it was, it was a devastating blow to our family. I was already a young preacher. I was called to preach and said yes to the call of God on my life to preach the gospel when I was a teenager. In fact, I was preaching uh, revival services in a small town in Texas when we received the word. I received the word about my father. Just married. I was actually 20 years of age when this happened, a college student, a young preacher, uh, newly married, and then this hits. But clearly God took that experience in my life. I was just speaking about it Sunday, in fact, in this past Sunday in my message. When I went to the small room, uh, a little chapel there at the hospital after my father died and got on my knees and really my face before God and cried out to him. And I, can tell, I can't tell you what happened in that room. I can't describe it, but I know I walked out of there different. I sensed the presence of the Spirit. I didn't see visions. I didn't speak in tongues. I didn't uh, hear angels singing. But the Spirit of God moved in my life in a, in a way that I cannot even describe. And I believe that it was in that anointing that I walked out of that room and uh, that God used that experience, that brokenness. Um, God uses broken people. Um, men throw away broken things. God uses broken things, and especially broken people. And so, in fact, it's been said that God cannot greatly use you unless you've been broken. Thankfully, we can choose a broken and contrite spirit. But if God chooses to use a broken and contrite spirit in our lives, he can, uh, in the breaking, can bless us. And I, I see that experience of, of the tragic death of my father as one of those breaking experiences that shaped my life. And was justice done in that case? That's a, that's a hard question to answer. The, the murderer was sent to a life sentence in prison uh, and we were told actually that he would not be eligible for any kind of parole for 40 years. He was, this was his third and fourth felony. So, and he was just a young man. He was only 24 years of age. Hard to imagine such anger in such a young person, but he, um, he had already had three felony arrests and these were third and fourth. So he was going up then for a life sentence. And I never followed up on that. I let God have it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. My brother and I, who was also a preacher, uh, he's now in heaven, but um, we just let it go and let God and let the justice system uh, take care of this gentleman. And so I never checked on it. And so you just, don't know. Well, I do now because about four or five years ago, I decided to check on 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 him and to see what happened. And and again, we leave it to God. We trust God, but he was actually released uh, after a short sentence, and we don't know why. Uh, but we did receive the papers on that. I think he served uh, about 17 years of a life sentence, perhaps out good behavior. I don't know. But you know, in the end, uh, the papers also told us that in his first year out of prison, he died of acute leukemia, this gentleman. So, so I don't know what God's plan in all of that was, but I, we chose back to you know my experience in this, we chose not to be embittered and uh, to let God have our grief as well as anything in terms of our anger in this. And certainly there was normal anger and frustration and all the rest, but um, let God be God and uh, let God be the judge of your life and all the events 
that's interesting that you, as part of that, sort of chose not to follow the case. Um, right. Part of part of giving it to God, I suppose. And does that help you now in your ministry when you're when you're counselling people who've been through horrific things and you're saying you're urging them to to do the right thing and to forgive? Does it help actually that you have personal experience of having to forgive in in the most unimaginable circumstances? You're not counselling anyone to do anything that you haven't had to do yourself. Very much, and uh, it helps me very much. You know, and the scripture says, "He is the God of all comfort, who uh, comforts us, and with the comfort that we are comforted, we comfort others." And so, yes, our experience in this grief and loss, and dealing with the issues of forgiveness and unforgiveness. Uh, has enabled me to have, I guess, some moral weight uh, in terms of preaching those scriptures. Had I, uh, I, I know, had I chosen to be bitter and angry the rest of my days, God could not have used me um, as He has used us. And so, I've had the opportunity many times, whether it is in the pulpit preaching, or telling this story, or related stories. You can relate it uh, a little bit to to Joseph, and Joseph said, uh, you brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so that's always the message for me, that God is good, he is doing good, and he's working all things together for good. And we just write Romans 8, 28, that scripture, uh, over all of this. You mentioned you were called into the ministry, and so you studied, and you actually led a number of uh, different churches, um, I think, in uh, Florida and Oklahoma before mm-hmm. before coming here. How did those experiences of pastoring in other places affect you when it came to this church? In other words, what lessons did you learn mm-hmm. through earlier in your ministry that you now apply and pick up today? Experience in ministry is, is uh, essential, and... Though Paul told Timothy, don't let no man despise your youth, the fact is when you're young and just getting started, you need life experiences. And God gave me uh, some wonderful churches, first in uh, a nearby state, Oklahoma, and my first church there uh, actually had a campus, uh, or rather a college church, where I was on the weekends preaching even as a college student. But my first full-time pastorate, uh, after serving on a church in Fort Worth as an associate where I was in seminary. But my first senior pastorate was in a little town in Oklahoma named Hobart, and it was it was about 5,000 people, and they were Dutch-German wheat farmers. And I'd never been around farmers to any degree, but I learned a lot from those farmers, how to get up early and learned about the harvest and and not just spiritually speaking but just that what it takes to to work hard and 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 to pastor people and to shepherd a flock and and you know we were a congregation of you know four or five hundred people but I learned a lot I learned how to pray uh, there were some godly men and then on to another church in Oklahoma same thing uh, just gaining more experience in the pulpit and in preaching uh, developing, you know, as I told you, I was a baseball player and athlete uh, growing up. So you have to keep, uh, you know, we call it reps or repetitions. Uh, you just have to keep getting better and better and excelling more and more, as Paul told the church at Thessalonica. So just getting better in the twenties. But my my big move as a young man was to go to the First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, Florida, which is a metropolitan city in South Florida, great place. And uh, that was a, a, a church and, you know, just humanly was way over my head. It was, a, it was a large church, and I was a young pastor, then 31 years of age. But it was in those years in the 1980s that 
we learned how to reach people as never before, and God moved in that church, and 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 the people gave me an opportunity to to use my gifts and and to grow the church, and it grew exponentially there in Florida, South Florida, and that all was preparation and set up for my ultimate call here to Preston Wood in 1989, 33 years ago. And coming here, as we've said, I think it was 11,000 members when you when yeah, you about 8,000 members. 8,000. And the thing is, I mean, the church had grown uh, very fast in its you know first years, and yet it had faced an incredible challenge in that the founding pastor uh, defaulted morally uh, with serial adulteries and was therefore, of course, forced out of the pastorate. So the church, only pastor the church had known, most of us, you know, me first, figured that the church so young, so it was new at the time, basically, 10, 12 years old, that, uh, that it wouldn't survive. And I was in South Florida uh, living in blue heaven. I mean, our church was literally on the coastal of the Atlantic Ocean. It was, we were reaching people. Last thing on my mind was returning to Texas. I love Texas, but wasn't motivated to get back here. But in God's call and God's plan, it, it's a longer story that you have time to listen to. But uh, we, we came here to find a very broken church. And yet God used us just preaching the word, loving people to to. God restored the church and healed the people, and it wasn't long till the church was exploding with growth again. Healthy, got the church became healthy after it was sick. Yes, yeah. As you say, you know that's that's a difficult scenario to arrive into in a church, as you say, where the the, the pastor had had affairs, and you had to come in and really, I, I suppose, build trust again in the leadership to no a certain question. extent. What were there certain practical things you did quite deliberately to try and regain trust and, and rebuild it? I, I tell pastors, regardless of your situation, you're going into a church that's uh, in the healthiest or, or unhealthiest. You know, seize the pulpit, take the pulpit, and you know, I could not change the pastor. What happened? Uh, I, I could only stand in the pulpit and line by line principle, precept by precept, teach God's Word. There's healing power in God's Word. And the church actually had prayed for a biblical preacher and uh, someone like me, as it turned out, and someone who was reliant upon the Holy Spirit. But it takes time uh, to heal. I remember those early days. I'd never experienced anything like this, of course. The, very, the My predecessor was extremely popular. I mean, this... and. And the other thing is he he ended up deciding he wanted to start another church down the street, which was you know, really unethical on his part, but God took care of that as well. But I had a lot of stuff going on. We had the, the former pastor down the street restarting. Uh, you could potentially lose uh, Preston Wood to a new church. You got a new pastor. Nobody knows him, me. and But we just preached the word, love the people, and we saw God uh, begin to heal the hurts and the hearts of people. And But I do remember early on standing in that pulpit and looking at the congregation, and they're trying to get to know me, and I'm getting to know them. And they had to, I'm thinking to myself, they have to be thinking, I wonder what this guy's got going on in a secret closet, a secret place somewhere. If, if I was quite insecure for a while because I never had anyone or felt like my integrity had been questioned or morality and now I'm feeling like I, I, I guarantee you these people wonder if they can trust this new guy. And so trust was built, and that takes time, and 
the rest is history. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you actually a, a bit about safeguarding leaders and putting good principles in place to avoid the scenario you've exactly just described. And maybe we'll come on and talk about it a little bit later on. But you'll know as well as I that, that sadly there have been lots of cases recently in in the news of of pastors quote unquote falling from grace. But but coming into Prestonwood knowing the history, did that make you want to put certain guidelines principles in place to to safeguard yourself i mean the famous example is is billy graham who i understand is no relation to you um uh, if though you share share the same surname but but there's a famous example there where he had a number of principles um the most famous being that he wouldn't be in the same room as another woman who wasn't his wife or another family member and people debate the rights and wrongs of that but the point is he, he had principles he had things in his life says i'm going to safeguard myself from immorality was that something you were conscious of coming in saying i don't want to make the same mistakes others have done and, and and we all need things in our lives to to stop us from falling into temptation yes i actually brought those kinds of uh, borders if you will uh, from my earlier years it was something I had a wonderful pastor growing up who taught me to uh, to live with integrity and, and and do some practical things, as you're mentioning the Billy Graham rules, they're called around here, to do those things which, uh, you know, I always say don't give the devil a stick to hit you with, uh, to protect yourself from uh, your own flesh, your own failings, and, and any any situation that might cause you to be tempted uh, beyond, you know, God says he will not allow us to be tempted beyond the ability to resist that temptation. So ultimately, though, accountability, I say this a lot, is not in having a group around you who are asking you questions. That's fine. But ultimately, accountability is an issue of the heart. And, you know, I just over the years, more than anything, have tried to pay attention to my heart. And I do that with daily devotion before God. The first thing I do uh, when I w- awaken is to to pray and read scriptures and seek God. And uh, when I find myself getting out of alignment, you know, I withdraw. I get my heart right, and those things are just essential because you can have all kinds of borders and rules, and you can break the rules and nobody knows them. Most of these guys that get in trouble, they've got rules; they just break them. So that <laughs> that becomes a, an issue of the heart. I will say this for me. I, I should give credit to my great wife, Deb, and we have uh, now been married. We were college sweethearts. We got married when we were still teenagers, really, 19 years of age. And so now we've been married 52 years. And so having a great marriage uh, is the great, greatest parameter uh, for your life is to cultivate a great marriage. And uh, that enables you to, as the Scripture says, love your wife and uh, to be loved in this way so you know you water your own lawn as if uh, as if to say and and to make sure that your marriage is strong and that's the greatest accountability that you can have how would you describe your calling compelling would be the word i i remember i'll tell you a fun story uh you know, the, the call to, to preach, the call to do what I do, which is to be a pastor. And, you know, though I do other things, I, you know, preach at other places and we have radio and television. All of it is a result of the calling to preach, the calling to take the pulpit. And then I've never wanted to do anything but shepherd, pastor a local church. So that's what I've done. Uh, I've had other opportunities, you know, to go 
do other things, parachurch or, uh, you know, institutions of some kind. But my heart is to be a pastor. That's what I'll do all my days. But um, when I was a young pastor or young man, my pastor, I was trying to uh, just define what, how I could know that I was called. And I, I was to the place where I said, Lord, you better stop this because I'm going unless you th- throw up a, a stop sign. So I wanted to talk to my pastor, and I caught him at a busy time, and, and he said, son, what do you want? I was 16 years old, and I tried to say, well, pastor, I just feel like God's calling me. I want to know. And he said, look, son, if God's calling you to preach, he'll be calling you after this conversation Let's go. In fact, we were going to a baseball game to play ball. He said, "Let's go play ball." And I was a bit offended at at, uh, at the time, thinking, "Well, he didn't he doesn't care. He cared more about the baseball game than my call." But he was right, wasn't he? Yeah. If you're called, it's perpetual. The callings of God are without repentance, and so just compelling. What Paul said, uh, necessity is laid upon me to preach the gospel. I can do no other. It, it was like uh, Jeremiah. When Jeremiah wanted to quit, he was so discouraged, and he went to the desert and cried. Uh, God you know, began to deal with him, and he said, uh, uh, he said, there was a fire burning within me that I could not, here's good King James language, I could not forbear. Uh, in, in other words, I just I can't help but do what God, there is a fire in me. And so I would describe it like that. I believe I was called in my mother's womb. Uh, even as a small child back in Arkansas, I was telling you about earlier, I just even then began to hear the whispers, if you will, of God's call upon my life to preach. And so it's been with me in one sense all my days. And so it's compelling. It is it is constant. Uh, and it is thrilling, really, because I wouldn't want to do anything else with my life than this. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favor right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. I'd love to know what an average day looks like. And the reason I say that is... In the UK, we don't have any churches as, as large as, as Prestonwood. And, and in the UK, I have some understanding of what a pastor might do. Because when you have a church of, say, 60 or 70, you can know everyone. Mm-hmm. You can do pastoral visits to pretty much everyone in the church. I imagine when you're leading Prestonwoods, it's not, well, I know it's not possible to know 20,000 uh, people. So what does an average day look like for a pastor of, of a church of this size? Because it must look, in in many ways, it must look like a different job almost to, to how how someone would pastor a much smaller church of 60 or 70. Well, what did Paul say? He said, uh, equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And I've pastored, as I told you, all-sized churches from that part-time church as a college student where we had 30 people. So I've pastored a church with 15 people that grew to 30. We actually doubled. <laughs> but uh, then then later, small town churches and, and then a metropolitan, cosmopolitan kind of church in South Florida and then this. And, and so in many ways, the principles of what I do have not changed. Um, we bring young pastors here and, and they're pastor, most of them are smaller churches and congregations. And I say, look, don't try to repeat this. I don't even know if it's repeatable, but 
there are some principles, some things that we do that are transferable to any pastor, to any any church. And I love developing. That's a big thing for me these days of my life to developing young pastors. We have a network of, of churches and pastors, most of them small church planters and so on. So when, you, when you're pastoring a church beyond your human ability to get to everyone, you must then train and develop lay leaders, which we have this church is just filled with, whether deacons or ministry leaders of all kinds. We have literally thousands of volunteers doing so many jobs. And, and so it's my job then to equip the saints. Now, I do my own ministry. I still... I still call the sick. I'm still. I'm doing a funeral of uh, a member today. Um, I'm, you know, I'm grateful for cell phones that I can make calls whenever I can. And so the pastoral side. And, and a lot of people think that a church like this would be uncaring towards so many members. But uh, without being defensive about it, I, I, I really would put our church up against any church in the world in terms of caring and shepherding our members. If you get sick and go to the hospital in our church, you're probably going to end up saying, would you not send so many people to visit? I need to get well. I mean, we just really cover that. We cover bereavement and, and all those you know inside things. And, and yet we're always, we're not inward focused. We train and develop our people to be evangelists and missionaries go to the world and are starting with our own neighbors and to the nations with the gospel. So all of those things, to answer your question, are principles, things that I did as pastors of a small church, preach the word, train people in evangelism, uh, equip people to do the work of the ministry. Here we have not only, of course, all these volunteers, but we have an incredible pastoral staff, a large pastoral staff. And so it's my job to lead the staff and to lead the leaders. So it's just different. It's, it's still a small group, but it just multiplies. And I try to use my leadership, which is always influence. I call leadership inspiring influence, to use my inspiring influence to uh, uh, enable others to do the work yeah. of the ministry. So when people say, you know, mega churches, they're great Sunday experience, fantastic atmosphere and worship yeah. and preaching, but actually, in a mega church, you can't really get to know people. Community is really hard. You're saying actually that doesn't have to be true. If you if you get your structures in the right place and you have good people, you can make sure the community aspect is still there even in a mega church. That is correct, and uh, I'm, I'm not speaking for other mega churches, uh, but for us, we have an incredible small group strategy. And um, back in the day, we used to call it Sunday school, uh, but. You know, it, it, it's now a, a, a small group strategy. We call them life group Bible studies. And this is not just for children or students, teenagers, but all adults. So even just to mention, you know, even back during the pandemic when we were all scattered and separated, we were able to connect people through their groups and uh, they were Zooming in and, and all the rest with their groups. But it's that infrastructure, that body life, if you will, the body working together we, we work really hard at helping people discover and develop and deploy their spiritual gifts and ministry. And, and so it happens in small groups. And it happens in the atmosphere. I dare say you know, one of the complaints we get, not, maybe not complaints, just questions, people coming in here, you know, we, we hear it all the time. People say, you know, I would never go to a church that big. 
they pass by and we've got these big buildings and they can be intimidating and, oh, I would never go to a church like that. I want it smaller. I want it more thoughtful or whatever. And uh, But yet they walk in here and, and the friendliness, the openness, the joy, uh, the excitement. So it's not just hype. It's not just a, you know, a big pep rally. You know, you, I always say we're not here to, to draw a crowd. We're here to grow a church. And so there's a difference in a crowd and a church. And frankly, you may maybe some churches that are so-called mega churches, you know, it's a, it's a big crowd. But this is a church. It's operating, it's function, it's ministering in small groups and in small ways. And, and, and the ministry, the community ministries beyond ourselves, I want to emphasize that as well. What makes this church vibrant and alive is we have so many community ministries and meaning meaning helping ministries, whether it's food or clothing or shelter or all those compassionate kinds of ministries, we do all of this in the community because we're not here to serve ourselves, but not to be internally focused, but to be externally focused. Yes. And I'd love to dig into that a bit more when it comes to evangelism, which, of course, as we know, every Christian, every church is is called to, as you say, not to be insular and keep these things to ourselves. So... um, How does that work in the context of of a, of a church as, as large as this? Because again, the the objection or the criticism would be that mega churches in general, what happens is, is known as transfer growth, where rather than people hearing the gospel for the first time, a new there's a big church in town, and people think, oh, that looks more impressive and more exciting than my little church, and so you have Christians moving from small church to big church, rather than people who are necessarily brand new to, to the faith. So so how does that work in terms of your evangelism strategy? And while I'm sure there have been some people who have come from other churches locally to, to Prestonwood because it's big, presumably what you really want are those who are brand new to the faith who haven't heard the gospel before, and that's where you would want to target your evangelism. How successful have you been in, in doing that? Very, very good question and, and strong observation there. No question that some of the larger churches, at least in America, have grown via transfer, and that uh, you know now in America you don't have as many small town groceries. You got these super groceries, Costco and Walmart, and so it's kind of people call it the Walmart effect, even in churches. Yeah. So the little businesses get shut down, and the big you know marts they uh, they grow, and 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 certainly I think just there's some of that that happens. It's going to happen. But what we attempt to do, we, we never focus on transferring people from other churches. Uh, our focus is always to uh, teach and train our people to share their faith in a natural way, to, to bring to have an invitational culture. Uh, because what is evangelism? At the very heart of it, at the very start of it with Jesus, Andrew found his brother and he brought him to Jesus. And so it's a very simple thing, really. And so the context of our church, when people bring their friends here, uh, they know they're going to get a message from God's Word that is biblical. They know they're going to get a strong gospel witness uh, from the pulpit, but also back to the atmosphere I was talking about. We pray it is the Holy Spirit working that that the Holy Spirit is drawing people, and I believe in the sovereignty of God and that God uh, brings people to us. And so what happens then is that many people come, most people who come to Christ in our church come on the arm of a friend or a family member. Uh, 
though they still pass by, we, 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 we actually interview people and ask them why they got here, what was their first touch. And some people say, I drove by. I mean, you can't miss this church if you drive by it. You and certainly so, some can't. People, I can testify to that. <laughs> so some people see it and they want to know what's going yes. on in there. Well, I noticed as well, even when I parked, um, I, you'll have to tell me what it says, I forget, but there was a sign, something to do with first-time visitors. Yeah. There's a special parking yeah. space just for me because I'm, a, I'm yeah. a newbie. Yep, yeah. and we greet our guests and we have ways of – of getting to know our guests, and we just create this culture for evangelism, and um, and and I again call it an invitational culture. Uh, it's not so much these days door to door, knock on every door in your community. We do some uh, neighborhood uh, outreaches for sure, but it's really just our people sharing faith in the daily walk of their lives and the witness of their personal faith. Uh, we just brought. We train our people. We just brought Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, who I believe you know, we've discussed it, who's training our people in apologetics, being able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And we just want to get better and better at being able to communicate to the culture. And and so I give uh, one thing that creates helps create this uh, culture for evangelism is I give a public come forward invitation every time I preach. And that means, I mean, back to Billy Graham, and no, he, I called him Uncle Billy. He wasn't my uncle, but we probably connect. Uh, the Graham name, we all came from Scotland, all the Grahams. So we probably hook up somewhere. His son Franklin and I are very close. He calls me cousin. Uh, so, I, but, we, you know, just think Billy Graham come forward invitation. Now, that's not the only way you can give a public invitation, but I'm very strong on having some way that people can respond intentionally to the message, to the gospel, and we do it still, you might call it a bit old school, but we do it inviting people uh, to come forward at a time of decision, and, and so that happens, and that's great. Uh, our, our community missions, that gets us out of uh, the Christian culture and into the world with the gospel. We go to... Uh, uh, underprivileged neighborhoods, underserved, impoverished neighborhoods. We get out of our own. We're in a we're in a quite uh, uh, you you could even call it wealthy community here in North Texas. But we get our church out of that. Uh, we do. We have a we have a crisis pregnancy center where we're saving babies, literally, physically, helping women to make uh, the the choice for life. But with that, it's always about sharing Jesus. It's just everything we do. It's like throwing a net. Uh, we just try to throw this big net around our community and around the world, and it's just people know that's who we are and that's what we're about, and and so that grows the church. I tell you one thing about transfers, though, just an interesting thing that's happened in the pandemic. We actually grew, the church grew during uh, the pandemic, uh, and I'm not talking about just online. We certainly grew our online community and PowerPoint. Uh, our radio and television community, but the actual church gathered here, we grew, and a lot of it was people found us online, and frankly, they were in liberal churches, progressive Christian churches, where the gospel is not preached, God's word is not taught. They began to see us, uh, our church, and our worship, and our preaching, and our message, and they ended up coming our way out of all these churches that were, were dead and dying because they weren't preaching Christ and the gospel. So those kinds of transfers are good. Many of them, uh, many of them, 
you know, you want them in a Bible believing church, large or small. People need to get out of out of deacon, you know, a big the big whole big movement of deconstruction going on right now among progressive Christianity. People need to get out of those churches and get to a church where their pastor and their leadership are teaching and preaching God's word faithfully, the inerrant you know, I'm an, an inerrantist. I believe in the infallibility of Scripture. So I'm a, a conservative Christian theologically at the highest level I can be. So it's all that put together sure. that creates this beautiful church called Prestonwood. What's been the best day of your ministry? And what's been the worst? Ah. Well, I would say the best day... Well, there have been a lot of those, and I'm grateful. But clearly, we were actually at, at, at another location of this church when uh, I, I arrived. And after the church began to grow so so quickly, we were out of space. We, we had a 3,500-seat worship center where we were, but we were out of space. The church was jammed into a neighborhood, and so we needed to move the church. And that's a big deal, uh, to try to move a big church. <laughs> And yet God led us and our people responded and we located a, a large plot of land where we now are here, 150 acres of property, and we built this magnificent 7,000-seat uh, worship center and the attendant spaces. And I would say um, the, the best day was probably the first day when we walked in here and the place was full and it just took us to a new season of life and ministry and growth and um, – so there are a lot of personal victories, you know, from the salvation of our children and grandchildren and, and their baptisms and all those kinds of things. Our children all are, they love the Lord, their, their spouses are here in the church, they're serving the Lord, the grandchildren are here in our schools. So on a personal side, you know, that's my greatest joy, that our children walk in truth and now our grandchildren are walking in that same path. You know, I would say uh, the, the worst day just in terms of church ministry uh, was, um, you know, a, a betrayal by a, a staff member, and I'll not get into the details, but someone that I loved and trusted and do to this day, but uh, a moral failure, frankly, that uh, that ended the ministry of, of a dear friend and brother and uh, here at the church, and that was a you know, a long-term staffer. And so it was, that was probably, that happened in 2013. So that was probably, you know, one of the worst days, just personally and, and for the church, it, because this person was a highly visible and beloved uh, member of our church staff. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people don't realize the the high highs that church leaders experience, but also the low lows. And, and being in ministry is like that, isn't it? Where you have those incredible high moments of, wow, people are coming to know Jesus, or I've seen someone healed, or I've had a prophetic word that's just opened everything up. But then also those incredibly low moments of whether it's betrayal um, or whether it's... Um, or just spirit. sadness. You know, when today, I mean, when you, you're, we're dealing a pastor, and, and if a pastor, that's why you got to give so much credit and pray for pastors. And, and I'm speaking here more of small churches who that church that has 50 people or 80 people or a few people and they're doing everything and they're challenged from one day they're dealing with grief and sorrow and the next day they're dealing with a beauty of a baptism and and it is it's it's a uh it is a up and down life as the 
book of Exodus talks about the uh, the faith being uh, hills and valleys. So it, it, there are hills and valleys, but the river runs through it. And so it's that's why you have to stay in the Spirit. You have to walk in the Spirit because I tell preachers all the time, this is the the greatest calling in life, but but the world's worst profession. You would you wouldn't choose this as a career. If it's a career, if it's just a career, you won't last because the challenge is too great. Not that being an attorney or a teacher or a, or a business person or a hardware manager like my dad, that, those are all important callings. Don't we don't minimize? But you know, to me, uh, this is the greatest calling in life, and I wouldn't do it again. But you wouldn't do it if you were doing it for the money or if you were doing it for the career perks. There are just too many challenges in life and in ministry to keep doing this unless the call of God is upon your life. You were uh, previously the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which for, for UK listeners is the largest denomination in, in the US. And, um, and that denomination actually is in the news right now. Um, there's been a huge amount of scrutiny accusation that there's been covering up of sexual abuse, there's been a damning report, and now even a, a government investigation into all of this, uh, and really accusations of, of lying and um, at, really at the top level of the Southern Baptist Convention. What's your reaction to that news, given your involvement in it, um, in terms of you were previously president of that, of that denomination, and now there seems to be this accusation that there's been widespread covering up of sexual abuse within churches? First of all, uh, it was a privilege. I was president of the Southern Baptist Convention um, in 2001, two, 2002 and three. so it's been a while, 20 years ago. Uh, it is a great denomination. In effect, it is not purely a denomination. If I could clarify, uh, we are a convention or a coalition of churches. We are all, every church, every Southern Baptist church is an independent uh, church, we we don't have a hierarchy. We don't report to people above our heads. The local churches are self-governing under God, and and so every church is autonomous. And we voluntarily choose to cooperate uh, in the mission strategies, supporting our seminaries, our mission boards, and uh, the ministries at a local and a state and a national level. The Southern Baptist Convention is the national big umbrella that covers it all. And so that's very important clarification because in this whole sexual abuse uh, thing, it we are not the Catholic Church, you know. And I think a lot of people see oh Southern Baptists and view it as the church or as in the Catholic or the Baptist, and that we are all have there is a hierarchical organization, and that somehow uh, that Southern Baptist is systemic. The sexual abuse uh, problem is systemic. Uh, in the entire organization, top to bottom. I do not believe that. Um, you know, one sexual abuse problem, one clergy uh, sexual abuse issue is one too many. Um, and we should fight to resist uh, the, the predators and all the rest. We do that here at our church. We have the most robust protection talk about guidelines. It's we, true we, they are all independent, but the accusation is that the, the convention as a whole had a had awareness of where abuse was going on and and didn't act. That's the accusation. Yeah, that, that is the accusation. And at some level, you know, there there were failures on the part of the national organization to address 
some of the calls to investigate uh, and to overlook the churches. Uh, it's, it's a long and complicated uh, discussion. But what I would say is that most, by, I mean, we do not have in our local churches in America, we have a cultural sexual abuse problem in the world and in America. And, and that must be addressed, and we must do everything we can to protect children and others from sexual abuse, adults as well. So that is being done. The awareness is heightened among Southern Baptists. I believe uh, we needed to take a look at it. Uh, we, we did an internal investigation with a third party. That report came back. Uh, and whatever you think of the report, it is clear that Southern Baptists are addressing this. And, and I personally... As a longtime pastor uh, among Southern Baptists, uh, I reject any I- idea that Southern Baptists are laced with sexual abuse in our churches or our, our clergy. So, uh, again, it's a much longer discussion, and I do have other opinions about how this, how we went about this. But uh, in the end, uh, we're ready to go forward. I am as as our church and uh, continue to do. Uh, it, it, it can be, if we're not careful, as Southern Baptist churches, to be a huge distraction, and it can uh, damage our witness in the world if we don't address it in the proper way. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems like what you're saying is this this will be resolved. It's not as widespread as, as the Catholic situation, but it seems to me from all the reporting that I've I've heard church leaders saying this is I've heard churches use the word apocalypse to say how bad this report is how widespread it was it sounds like you don't quite agree with that that I actually- totally disagree with that and I know the person very well who said that and uh, I totally disagree that it was an apocalypse now I go back one predator in a church unchecked that that's apocalyptic. I mean, that's that's hellish. Is sinful. Is is criminal. So you deal with that. But to suggest, to say that Southern Baptist churches across America have an apocalyptic problem with sexual abuse, I don't believe it. It doesn't doesn't chime with your experience. No, I just keep my eyes open. I know what's going on in the churches around us on the ground. I'm not someone sitting in an ivory chair making, writing commentary. So. One of the differences I've observed between the UK church and, and the US, and it's been great to be here in, in Texas and meet leaders, is is there's a real uh, willingness in America to engage in politics in a way that I know a lot of UK church leaders won't. And I'll give you an example of that. was, of course, the, the much-talked-about Brexit debate we had in the UK, and you had people very strongly saying we should leave the EU and others saying we should remain in. And while some church leaders gave their view, most didn't. And most church leaders in the UK said we don't, we don't really want to put off anyone who's coming into our church who may be in favour of Brexit if I say publicly that I'm in favour of Remain. So let's just, you know, to keep unity, I suppose, let's not get into politics. And I've noticed that American church leaders don't always take that approach. I know you yourself, you've, you've uh, been happy to talk about people like Donald Trump and say why you, as a Christian, support him. So can you help me understand why there is that culture here of, of being a bit more politically engaged? Because I suppose a British church leader might say, but if for the sake of argument, you are you are pro-Trump uh, in in the media. Is that not a bit off-putting to say, I don't know, a Democrat who might want to come to your church, but think, actually, I don't know if I do want to come to that church because they have such different politics to me. That would be the kind of 
the objection, I suppose, from a British church leader. Can you help me understand sure. why you would take a different approach on that? Sure. Uh, politics is divisive by the very nature of politics, but politics are also amoral in one sense. There's good politics and there's bad politics. So politics matter uh, because pr- uh, policies matter, and policies matter because people matter. So I hopefully end up on the side of because people matter, principles matter, and, uh, and, the, and the principles of the sanctity of life, the principles of the sacredness of marriage, uh, and, and all the moral questions that we deal with today in the culture. And as a Bible-believing Christian with a biblical worldview, my view is you don't keep that inside the church, that you have a prophetic role in the culture and an opportunity as well as an obligation as a pastor, as a Christian, to express uh, your views on terms of, of, again, let's just say biblical worldview. So for you, it's about it's about the it's Bible. Always ultimately, about, it's not about politics. It's always it's never to me about politicians or politics, but always principles. I say, don't vote your pocketbook. A lot of people, when they vote, it's it's about the money, and frankly, it probably always will be. Here in America, we're dealing with an inflation issue and and and, and so called, I guess, uh, a recession potentially. So people, when it comes to the next election this fall, they're going to vote their pocketbook or something, and, and that's biblical in one sense because the Bible talks about kinds of government and how we support the government and, and paying our taxes, and and so that there is an economic plan in the Bible, right? And and so you know, so we do care about people's money. We do care about what it costs to buy gasoline and, and fill their cars and a band's paycheck. So we don't dismiss the idea of a pocketbook, but but for me, you know, that's really not my lane. I mean, my lane is is biblical principles, and so I stay on that. So I always say, you know, support the candidate or the persons who are going to at best support your biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. And that can get out of bounds. It can get out of line at times. It, politics is messy. As to my support of Donald Trump, I was in support of him for three reasons. And I actually did an interview that was reported in the Wall Street Journal here in America uh, early on with President Trump before he was elected. Three reasons. Supreme Court and the Supreme Court because of of sanctity of life issues, other issues of religious freedom. So Supreme Court. And you which could – I mean one could observe – even an impartial observer should look at that and say you've kind of been vindicated on that point in that you yeah. wanted Trump in because you wanted more conservative justices to overturn Roe versus Wade. Mm. And while that didn't happen under and not, Trump— And not just Roe v. Wade, uh, but but other issues of, 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 uh, of biblical, biblical importance and significance, uh, say marriage and yeah. other, other kinds of issues. But so a, but that a, a judicial system that is just, yeah. and not just on those issues. We yeah. believe also in biblical justice and those issues. Yeah. So a Supreme Court that was constitutional yeah. and, and best reflect uh, the appointments would best reflect the viewpoints of conservative Americans, whether Christian or not Christian. So, that so I said the Supreme yeah. Court, that happened. Yeah. The other was religious freedom. And, and and that's an ongoing uh, consideration in Europe as well as in America. The the freedom of of the church, not not freedom of worship, just to go to your church and do your thing and go home and never say anything about it, but the public square and our ability to be able to speak, and that's at the heart of our constitution, uh, is religious freedom. 
again, not religious worship. Some people want to turn that to say uh, freedom of worship. Well, you know, just to go to your church and worship, that's not freedom of religion. Freedom of religion expands from your building to wherever you go. And uh, so, and then the other point was sanctity of life. And so we believe, I believe now that uh, President Trump is out of office, that in all three areas he, he came through, I believe, for the American people and certainly for Bible-believing Christians. Yes. Uh, was, it, was it always easy? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, did, did we always love uh, President Trump's personality and way of saying things? No. Did, did we speak to him privately of, the, of, the, of these things? I was a part of his faith council, and we had the opportunity to pray with him and for him and to speak directly to him regarding issues uh, and regarding you know how we go about getting things done. So I, I just think you want to be involved. I think you want churches to be salt and light. You want Christians to be salt and light. And if you absent yourself from the leadership table, if you allow, in this case, in America, the leftist and, and the unbelievers to, to have your politics, then what do you have left? So I, I, I see it as a spiritual fight. Yeah. yeah. How possible was it to, to challenge the president of the United States on issues, as you say, where you as a Christian might have said that's not quite right? Because that's quite a big ask to walk into the room with arguably one of the most powerful people in the world and, and try and be a, yes, an advisor and yes, someone who's a Christian, but also there would have been times, as you just mentioned, where you needed to say, sorry, we don't agree with that, or or can you think about that slightly differently? How easy is it to do that, to walk into a room, one of the most powerful people on the planet, and actually say, we, we disagree on this? Were you able to do that? Yes, but you know, it, it most often did not happen in a room where you say, walk into a room, and uh, you, I and others, we were with the president in rooms, uh, and he was, you know, President Trump in my lifetime was the most faith-friendly president, certainly pro-life president. We've had others, Bush and others that I admire and appreciate, but he was the most faith-friendly and welcoming to people like me. Uh, and 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 he wanted us to to speak to him forthrightly. He would always ask, you know, are you happy with what we're doing? Uh, we were able, and obviously I'm not going to get into details here, but I can only tell you that he was wide open to to not, you know, I wouldn't say we went in there, uh, you know, to correct him, but to counsel him at, at his request. And on the side, on the side, we had, uh, we had a mechanism, if you will, a, a communication ability with his staff and with his cabinet to address uh, if there were questions, if there were things we did not agree with, as you put it, that we could address it in that way. So there were many avenues in which we could speak to the president beyond being in a room with sure. him. Sure. And as I say, there's, there's got to be a balance, isn't there, with, with any, any relationship in terms of encouragement and perhaps uh, as a Christian leader saying, saying things that, that aren't quite right. Well, look, we, we were accused of, you know, just there for photo ops and, and uh, you know, that we, we weren't speaking truth to power and all the rest. And course, the people saying these things weren't actually there. I was, and others were, and and I know what we did, and and, and I know that God used uh, President Trump in a in a big way uh, for the values that many of us share as as Christians. Yeah. Just one final final quick question on politics, and we'll we'll move on. But 
But that is, again, to help help UK church leaders who looked at what was happening. And they cast their minds back to uh, the, the scandal with, with Bill Clinton, where there was clear immorality and where Christians at the time said, this is not right. You know, if you're not faithful in your marriage, if you're not faithful in your private life, then we can't trust you with our, with our public life and with our politics. And, and some Christians looked at that and said, well, well, that's right, you know, with, with Bill Clinton to say you've got to be a man of integrity at home or you can't leave the country. And, and, and there was a, what felt like a bit of a disconnect in that the accusation was that someone like Trump had not been a man of integrity and faithfulness in his, in his private life. And so there was a question, well, why this time are, are some U.S. church leaders willing to back this man? It, was, it a, was it a question of the ends justifying the means? Opposing Bill Clinton for his moral failures was was not for me uh, the issue. Uh, the fact that Bill Clinton and his administration was very pro-choice in, in regarding the sanctity of life and abortion, uh, they had policies that were uh, leading left, and they look rather moderate today, frankly, compared to some of the things that we're seeing. So yes, we were all disappointed in Bill Clinton's behavior and the character issue. I do believe that character matters. Of course, character matters, uh, whether it's Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. Both of these men are obviously powerful, persuasive leaders uh, in, in different ways. But um, you, you know, since you made the comparison, as to President Trump, um, re- regarding his character, you know, we, we came to believe that, uh, that truly, I personally believe, that truly the, the, his behavior was past tense in his life and um, that he is faithful to his wife and was faithful while he was in the White House. I don't have inside information, but everything I know. And, and so, you know, it, it, I go back to what I just said earlier. Policy matters. Principles matter. Personalities are important. Character is vitally important, and it, you know there are some things that you know that you can't tolerate in a leader. But let's remember this about a secular leader: a secular leader is is not going to teach your Sunday school class. Uh, is he he's not the pastor of your church? We weren't electing Donald Trump or Bill Clinton, for that matter, to be the pastor of our church. Uh, but the leader of our country, and and so I I relate it. Uh, I I don't I don't dismiss, you know, the spiritual impact upon a man's life and his secular leadership. But it is it is not a Christian position. We're not electing him pope or pastor of this church. Mm. That's yeah yeah. So sadly, we're almost out of time. But tell me a bit about what the future holds for you and for Prestonwood. What's the kind of vision that you're you're living with, and also how how is your health? Because I know you you had a cancer diagnosis quite some time ago now. And yeah. uh, how, how are you feeling? Uh, first of all, health is uh, is wonderfully, ridiculously good. I am seventy two, but uh, but very healthy, and and my energy is high, and my calling is consistent, and so, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That word abounding means excelling, always excelling more and more in the work of the Lord. You know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So don't be weary in well-doing, but uh, in due season you will reap uh, a harvest. So that's my attitude. I get up every day excited about life and the calling of God, our church. The church is healthy. We're growing. 
We're reproducing new believers. We're growing the congregation, discipling more people, sending more people. So we have a 2030 vision. Uh, so that's you know the next seven or eight years that we are planning, and and with that come a lot of things. The development of our Christian school is high on the list. The uh, the expansion of our community ministries uh, high on the list. We're looking at potentially another location of the church. Um, our Hispanic ministry we're having in Texas uh, with the immigration from the Latin countries, uh, South American countries. Lots of Spanish people, Spanish speaking people here. And so that ministry is growing. Our pregnancy center, we're setting up more and more centers to save uh, babies and reach people for Christ. Uh, we, we have so many ministries that are becoming more and more effective. We have a life recovery ministry that we just started that is helping people with mental health issues. There was a time in churches you never wanted to mention if you were depressed <laughs> because, you know, you, you oh, what's wrong with you? That was a you? stigma, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and now, you know, th- thankfully that's opening up, and we have actually life recovery for people with addiction, people with mental health crisis issues. Uh, that's uh, very important. We have I'm very excited uh, about the potential of the next generation of pastors. We are developing and looking even developing a ministry school uh, for for young pastors, so I, there's plenty on my plate, and uh, I'm fired up. We have an incredible, incredible pastoral staff, uh, cohorts with me doing the work that lift my hands and do. I mean, the only way we can do what we do here with this many uh, members and opportunities is is with multiple people and ministers. So I'm equipping our staff, uh, leading our team, and uh, very very thrilled to do it. And full of energy and eager to carry on for some time yet. Yes, sir. Fantastic. Well, Pastor Jack Graham, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's been fantastic to chat. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Thank you so much for listening to The Profile podcast today. It's been great to have your company. The Profile Podcast is brought to you by Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. We publish bold, insightful and balanced articles on a whole host of issues affecting the UK church and beyond. And I don't want you to miss out on our latest deal. We will give you the next three print issues of the UK's leading Christian magazine direct through your door. Free delivery, the next three issues, and you will have total access to brand new articles published every day online and our online archive. That's the next three print issues and full online access for just £5. £5 for three print issues delivered to your door and full online access. It's a fantastic offer. Not too long left on it, so you'll need to hurry if you want to take advantage of it and head over now to Premier Christianity. Dot com. The subscription deal is there. Three issues for £5 at premierchristianity.com. Thank you for listening to today's show. And we'll be back same time, same place with another great interview for you coming up next week. Take care.